Welcome to the Broken Vessels Podcast. Jeremiah 18.4 states, And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand, and he reworked it into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to do. This is the Broken Vessels Podcast. I'm your host, Joshua Simpkins. This is a podcast where we have discussions on theological themes for the broken to bring encouragement and hope in Christ. And I would like to welcome you back to another episode of the Broken Vessels podcast. I'm so thankful that you're here to join me for another episode today. And you all may have remembered on our episode that we had with Sarah Beth Capusta, where we talked about deconstructionism, that she had mentioned a podcast that she thought was very, very helpful to her, and she recommended it to you guys, that it would be a very helpful podcast for you to listen to as well. So I was actually able to reach out to the host of that podcast to ask him to come on the Broken Vessels podcast, specifically because, as we talked about with Sarah Beth, the idea of faith and being able to question was a really important process for her to go through as she kind of went through her deconstruction and reconstruction. And it's very important for all of us as believers to really, number one, understand what biblical faith is, but also having what I would call a healthy skepticism. And so that's actually what we're going to be talking about today, brokenness, faith, and skepticism. And who better to have on to talk about that than the host of the Humble Skeptic podcast, Shane Rosenthal. He is the founder of that podcast, and though he was raised in a Jewish home, he became an atheist at a young age, but later in college he ended up losing faith in atheism and converted to Christianity. Shane was also one of the creators of the national radio broadcast called The White Horse Inn, which he also hosted from 2019 to 2021, and he has written numerous articles for a variety of sites and publications, including Modern Reformation, Core Christianity, Table Talk, Logia, The Heidel Blog, and others. Shane also contributed a chapter to the book Defending the Faith, which was edited by Michael Horton, and he also received his bachelor's in humanities from Cal State Fullerton and his master's in historical theology from Westminster Seminary. And so, Shane, it's so great to have you here on the Broken Vessels podcast. Welcome. Thanks. It's great to be here, Joshua. Awesome. Well, we want to get into this discussion talking about faith and skepticism, and I don't know how much you get into this in your podcast. I do know that you've had some episodes. I think Sarah Beth has been on your podcast talking about going through spiritual abuse and stuff. So you've touched on some things when it comes to the brokenness that comes from not having a right understanding of faith and and that kind of a thing. But I think we just want to start at the foundational level. So many in the Christian community, they define their faith in a variety of different ways. So this is something that you talk about on your podcast, and you've also recorded a lot of man-on-the-street interviews in which you ask Christians what they think faith is. What kind of answers do you get when you typically ask those kinds of questions? Yeah, I've done this over the years with White Horse Inn. So at various places, I'll, you know, get my microphone out and I'll just ask 
people from, you know, sometimes it'll be a secular setting. Sometimes it'll be a pastor's convention. Sometimes it'll be a Christian concert. And over the years, I've had the opportunity to ask lots of different theological questions. You know, what do you think about salvation? Do you know the Ten Commandments? You know, questions about biblical literacy. And on some occasions, I asked, what is faith? How do you define what faith is? I recently did that on my new podcast, The Humble Skeptic, and I interviewed maybe about 100 Christians from a bunch of different settings, a Christian music concert, a mega church, and a Christian convention. And man, what kind of answers do I get? Well, there seems to be a trend here. They were the same that I got maybe 15 years ago when I did it for a segment on the White Horse Inn. And what I often get is that faith is a blind leap. It's a spiritual sixth sense. Right. So it's something like, uh, not something that you can prove. It's kind of like a spiritual intuition, something you just know deep down in your heart. Sometimes it's related to a gut feeling. It's this kind of feeling or an experience, something that is demonstrated by the fact that it works. You know, some people even talk about it, but most everyone's focusing on the subjective aspect. It's like what's personally meaningful for me. And so uh, that's been my focus this past year. Mostly, as I charted the new territory with this new podcast, focusing on blind faith and what are the implications of that. One of the things that I typically do when I hear those kinds of answers for faith is I'll follow it up with, well, if faith is a blind leap, then why did you choose this particular faith? And often Christians, when they're presented with that, they don't know how to answer. Wow. Just real quick, where do you think those answers that you're getting where do you think that stems from? Like, I think there's been a, a huge turn toward the subjective over the last 150, 200 years. So you get these ideas that don't sort of grow from the ground up. Sometimes they do, but a lot of times it kind of trickles down. And, you know, there was this period in the Western culture called romanticism. So you have the subjective turn that you can even see in the painting and the music where you'll have impressionist painting. It's more about the feeling that the lily pads inspire in you. And there's the romantic music and there's also romantic ideas and philosophy. And a lot of the um, philosophy and theology that came out of that period tended to be more on the subjective than the objective side. Right. So. Since that period, if you trace it, definitions of faith tended to be a little bit more on that subjective side. For example, if you type in the word blind faith or a leap of faith, and I really recommend that your listeners do this, there's a thing called the n-gram on Google. So n-g-r-a-m. And you can just put in words or phrases and it'll trace how those words or phrases appear over time in all the books that Google has scanned. And it turns out when you do those two words, I mean, it's only like leap of faith is only not a whole lot of references to it before the 1920s. Right. And then the uh, blind faith, you know, you see references to it, but it really explodes in the turn of the century. And it's just kind of trickling there around the 1800s. But both of these are sort of new ways of thinking about faith. And that's something that I've been exploring on my podcast. Okay, so that's kind of where it more than likely comes from. But what, in your opinion, is wrong with these definitions of faith? Well, so faith is a blind leap. I mean, here's the thought experiment that I'd like your listeners to take and to apply here. So Christianity is a kind of a new faith 2,000 years ago, and it converts the Western world country by country. So, you know, 300s, it takes over the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire had all kinds of gods and goddesses, you know, Zeus and (laughs) all these different deities 
that something had to convince these former pagans. You know, I mean, I have an English descent. So if you go to the UK, it was formerly Druid and they had all kinds of different pagan views. But something had to convince these people to leave their Druidism or their belief in polytheism. And what was that? Well, Christianity didn't simply say, hey, try this new therapy. You'll have amazing feelings, better feelings than you've ever had in your old faith. Yeah. It didn't say you got to take this leap. It didn't say this will work better. You'll have your best life now. Right, right. (laughs) And when you go back to the New Testament and you see what kinds of arguments they made, and then when you look in the early church, the kinds of arguments that they have, you never see the sort of appeal to the subjective. You know, when you look through the sermons in the book of Acts, Peter never says, look at me and what wonderful experiences I've had. You can have these same experiences too. They never say, just take that leap of faith and it'll all go well with you. They don't define faith as a feeling. They don't define it as an experience. They typically, if you look at what they are doing, they're continually referencing what they've seen with their eyes. A lot of people think faith is blind, but they're often referencing that which they've seen. This is why there's such an emphasis on eyewitness testimony and the language of testifying and testimony and witness. Pay attention to those words. They're often there in the text. And even when some characters don't see with their eyes, or what Jesus actually encourages, he is talking to Thomas, who refused to believe in the testimony of his compatriots, the fellow apostles. He refused. And Jesus says, um, he didn't say, you are, you know, you're not one of my disciples because you refuse to have faith. He actually shows up and says, now that you've seen me, now put your hand here. And he gives him reasons for his faith. Now, Jesus then will say, you have seen me, but blessed are those who have not seen me. And some people you know, make an argument for blind faith in light of that. But even there, the people who will believe based on the testimony, it's still based on eyewitness testimony. It's just coming through the ears, not the eyes. Because Jesus isn't going to appear to everyone throughout the world, but it does come through the reports of the apostles. And that's kind of what you see in the book of Acts. He's not going to appear to everyone, but he has appeared to these who have been appointed. That's language from Peter. Okay, so the problem is, is that the subjectivity obviously, yeah. and, and this idea of blind faith. But some people would come back to you and say, well, actually, that is biblical. Feeling your faith is biblical. And they might bring up a passage like in Romans chapter 8, verse 16, where he says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. You know, and I've had people use that verse to say, well, if you're not feeling faith, if you're not feeling your faith, or if you're not feeling like you're a Christian, then you probably aren't, because the Spirit isn't bearing witness with God's Spirit, so that might be an indicator that you're not a Christian. So explain to the listeners, then, what you believe a proper biblical understanding, then, is. Yeah, that kind of an approach, you know, there are a few passages that refer to the testimony of the Spirit, but if you take a look at those passages, I'm in the middle of a writing project where I'm going to be spending a chapter on that. And so as I've looked at those kinds of texts, one thing you don't see is the word feelings. Yeah. (laughs) uh, For one of my episodes, I asked the question, is faith a feeling? And I looked at every possible word that could possibly be translated in English as feeling. And I just, I couldn't find that word anywhere within 200 words of the word faith. I never see faith connected in New Testament passages with the word feelings. Yeah or even experiences. So yes, the Spirit does testify to us that we are the children of God, but how does that work? Well, there is this language from the Gospel of John where men love darkness 
And when light comes into the world, because they love darkness, they run from the light. Right. One of the ways that you can sort of understand that the Holy Spirit has been interacting in your life is the fact that as you are self-reflective, you say, wait a minute, something is different about me. I actually haven't run away from the light. I've run to the light. Mm -hmm. And it's that there is something different about my desires now. And the fact that I have clung to and I've persevered in this. And I think that we can look to that as one of the anchors, one of the signs that we are truly God's children. But that's not an argument, especially for other people, why it's true. It may be something that helps you to confirm that I really do belong here, but it's not ever one of the foundations that you find the apostles using as they actually try to induce faith, encourage faith to outsiders. So basically the problem, I think, is the way that we tend to think of faith, even the word faith, it has kind of a religious connotation. Right. It's almost like one of these religious words, people of faith. In reality, though, the apostles and the early framers of Christianity didn't choose to use this word because it conveyed a religious sensibility. They just used the simple, ordinary Greek word for trust. Mm-hmm. And it's a word that Aristotle and all kinds of people in the first century and way beyond that. This is the word that basically means reliability. Sometimes if you were to give a person your word, it wouldn't be enough. So you'd have to give them collateral. Here, take this bag of gold so that when I come back, it's a way for you to have assurance that I will do the thing I said. And that collateral was called faith. (laughs) Now, it's actually not the English word faith. In Greek, it's pistis. And sometimes that collateral was called assurance, you know, confidence. It's this proof even sometimes translated. So the way Aristotle and others use this word pistis, it's actually the opposite of the way that modern Christians define it. In fact, if you listen to the way that modern atheists talk, they will often say that they are not religious believers because faith is believing things without evidence. It's believing something without evidence. And a lot of Christians and religious people in general have basically adopted that view. While it's true for a lot of religions, it's not true for the Christian religion. That's the exact opposite. The English word faith has come to mean that, but that's not what pistis means. Pistis in Greek means giving someone proof. And one great example of this is the way Paul uses this word pistis in Acts 17. That's great. Mars Hill speech, he says, God has given proof of his coming judgment by the resurrection of the dead. Well, the word in Greek there is the word pistis. And it doesn't make sense to say God has given faith there, but he's using faith in that same sense that Aristotle and others did when he gave him collateral. He's given proof of his coming judgment. We just don't think of the word faith that way. In fact, most of the people, when I ask them, what is faith? They say faith is something that can't be proved, you know, because you have this gap, the proof, the evidence will only get you so far. And then faith is the leap that you make from that place where you have evidence. And then you take that faith leap to get to the other side. That is not at all what the Bible means when it uses this word faith. Okay, well, you're going to have somebody that's going to be a detractor and say, well, Hebrews 11.1 1 says faith is the substance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So reading that on face value, it seems to say that in a sense that it is blind faith. So how would yeah. you interpret a verse like that? Yeah. In fact, when I ask people in the street and these men on the street interviews, that verse probably comes up maybe 25 or 30 percent of the time. And mostly people remember it in the King James language. Right. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Well, first of all, yeah, there are times in which faith requires us to have confidence in something you can't see. I mean, just think about the way that you interact with a doctor 
or a financial advisor or a babysitter. So the financial advisor is going to, you, you have to trust that person to increase your wealth tomorrow. The babysitter, you don't know what the outcome will be. The question is, do you trust them while you're gone? <laughs> so right. you, it's obviously trust often relates to things you can't see. The doctor, well, my conditions change based on what this doctor says. So I had a problem with my gut and I had one doctor tell me that my intestines were squeezing at the wrong time. He gave me medicine and I believed him. I believed this guy so much that I swallowed the medications he recommended. Okay, Mm. that's real trust. Yeah. (laughs) It didn't do any good because my faith was in his diagnosis, which happened to be incorrect. A different doctor, a couple of years later, took some more in-depth scans and it turned out that I had an improperly functioning gallbladder. And when I had that removed, my pain went away. Mm. So he gave me more confidence based on deeper investigation that better fit my symptoms. Right. So you not only have to have the trust, but the trust has to align with the actual objective reality. And so what you may know people who are good financial advisors or babysitters, you may know of them, But it's not until you actually give them your child or your money. That's the actual active trust part where it connects to reality. So I think that's a really good picture of the way we understand biblical faith. Now, going back to your question about Hebrews 11 one in that passage, it's not actually defining what faith is. It's actually telling us what faith connects us to. Okay. So if you look at that whole context, the passage is about our ultimate inheritance. They were seeking a city and that city whose foundation is God. So it's our ultimate inheritance. And that inheritance hasn't appeared yet. It's something we're hoping for. Mm -hmm. It's still yet to come. It's the future, right? So if you look at the first word, substance, faith is the substance of things hoped for. That word substance in Greek, a lot of the lexicons that I was looking at, I looked at a lot. A lot of them came down to the fact that in the Greek culture, that particular word that was used there referred to like a title deed of a house that gives you property rights that proves you have the right to this particular deed of land. Right. And then the other one, the conviction of things not seen, another way that's often translated is just it's evidence of things not seen. I think it's just saying the same thing in a different way. Faith is the title deed of our future inheritance, and it's documentary evidence of the thing that's not seen. What's the thing not seen? Well, ultimately, the passage is about heaven and the new Jerusalem. And if you read that entire chapter, that's what it's about. In other words, Hebrews 11.1 is not defining faith as epistemology, as how do we know what it does. It's actually a great passage for justification by faith alone, soteriology. It's how we're saved. Mm -hmm. It's telling us if you have faith now, you have your property rights. That's awesome. Your <laughs> ultimate inheritance. Yeah. It's not actually saying how you can know that you know that you know that you know by your feelings or anything like that. Right. Now, yes, it does relate to unseen things, but again. But you, it's an objective you. reality. You, yeah. I, I have the title deed in my hand. <laughs> yeah. So I have the title deed, but I have it for tomorrow where I actually get the title deed isn't the property but it connects me to the property. And that is evidence. The title deed is evidence. And how do we have that trust? Well, it comes by the ear. Faith comes through hearing and it's through the promises. And if you look at how faith is established on that basis, what are the apostles doing regularly? Well, they're saying we have seen with our eyes that which the prophets promised centuries ago. There's a match between the Old Testament prophecies and the eyewitness testimony. That's the basis of faith. So, yes, it comes to the ear because we're hearing the apostles' testimony. Right. So it's not seen, but it's not to say that it's not evidential. It is evidential. It's just sometimes not seen with the eyes. Now, if Hebrews 11.1 1 is saying faith is blind, 
then Thomas didn't have faith because he refused to see until Jesus appeared to him. Right. And he became a believer when Jesus appeared to him and he touched him and he saw him. So if faith is defining faith, then Thomas isn't a believer. Wow. Yeah. Well, some people may even say that. (laughs) (laughs) Not being tongue in cheek or anything, but I am going to play a little devil's advocate here. Um, So the passage in James where it says, even the demons believe and tremble. And I'm coming at this from having gone through really bad theology and everybody in my listenership knows like we're all about brokenness and broken vessels and what we've been through and And we're going to get to this as we continue in the discussion, the brokenness that we see that comes from this. But one of the things that I guess in a sense is triggering to me when I hear it is the whole idea of, well, head knowledge and heart knowledge. Yeah. People like to use that. Again, I feel like it's this, again, it's this whole subjective thing. And then they always use like a verse, like the verse in James where it says, well, even the demons believe and tremble. So basically the Pharisees had intellectual knowledge of God, but that didn't save them. And they'll say things like that. So then here we go again, it starts moving back over into there's something ethereal or subjective up there that makes you know, again, and you you use the term that I've heard a lot of these people use, the know that you know that you know that you know, you know, and it's like, how, how are you ever going to know? <laughs> you know? <laughs> so how would you respond to those types of things that people say about faith? Yeah, so the James passage, when he's referring to even the demons believe, it's a good component of how we should think about the different aspects of faith. So what I would say is that you could divide faith into three component parts. If you're going to trust someone, let's think about the financial advisor babysitter again. Right. If you're going to trust someone with your money or your kids, you got to know something about them. If a guy just shows up at your door and says, hey, I'm going to invest your money. If you don't know anything about them, you're not going to give him your money or your kids. Right, right. <laughs> So you got to know something about them. You can't put your trust in something you know nothing about. So there's an intellectual aspect. And then you also have to know that it's true. I mean, I can know information about Santa Claus, but I also have to know that Santa is real if I'm going to trust him. (laughs) And the tooth fairy is another example. Okay, so I can know about the tooth fairy. Then I can know that the tooth fairy isn't just a story. This is a real person. Okay, and if it's not a real person, I'm definitely not going to trust this person. Now, think about Abraham Lincoln. He's a real person. He really did exist, but I can't trust him because he's dead. Right. (laughs) So there's a difference between sort of trusting information with regard to what Abraham Lincoln did. I know that it's real, but I can't put my trust. Now, the apostles were actually asking people to put their faith in Jesus as if he was still alive after his crucifixion, Mm -hmm. which is weird because that's like people, it's very odd. A lot of liberals will say, you know, they were inculcating a respect for Jesus. No, they were asking you to put your trust in this guy as if he was still alive. Mm-hmm. Now, the demonic faith would be the assent. So knowledge, assent, knowing that it's true, and then the trust. So I'm going to not just know about my financial advisor, babysitter. I'm not going to just know that it's true. They're a true and reliable company or a true and reliable person. I'm actually going to give them my money or my kids. Right. It's a third step. And what James is critical of is that sort of the demons know that God is real and they know that he's really true, but they just don't trust him. The problem was, you know, their revolt. Right. Yeah. It's <laughs> they, a rebellion. They've changed teams. <laughs> it's like they know the objective truth. They just reject it. Exactly. They know it's yeah. true, but they reject yeah. being That's all in. That's where we want to say Christianity is more than just head knowledge. Yeah. But when you reduce everything to a subjective feeling and experience only, apart from any intellectual grounding, 
Again, the question to come back with is how do you distinguish that with any other religion? Every other religion on the marketplace defines faith subjectively, talks about the faith experience. I mean, I, this is something I do on my podcast regularly. I'll talk to Mormons. They will define faith as this burning in the bosom. And then I'll ask the Christians, like, in light of what the Mormons claim or the Muslims claim, you know, that it's, it's just something you're raised with, something that makes your life better, something that you experience. How do you know that Christianity is true? It's no different when you define it that way. In fact, that's the typical way that cults define faith. It's blind faith in your charismatic leader. Right. I mean, sure, Jesus had some things to say against that. Mm-hmm. The blind lead the blind. They will both fall into a pit. I mean, that's we're warned not to have blind faith, actually. Yeah. Okay, so... We've got a really good foundational understanding of really what true biblical faith is. And I have a feeling with some of our listeners, we're probably blowing up the world right now (laughs) with how we're defining faith. So let's talk about healthy skepticism, because on your podcast, your podcast is called The Humble Skeptic. Skepticism or questioning our faith in most Christian contexts is considered at best dangerous territory and at worst outright apostasy. So why do you think it's okay to ask questions about faith and have skepticism towards the teachings that we hear from Scripture? Because we've just pointed out several areas where people have kind of cherry-picked verses, biblicism, they've made things say what they aren't saying, and we're saying it says this— So you're going to have people that are going to be like, well, you guys say this and they say this over here. So how do I even know what's real or true? So why should I accept any of it? But then you have the Christian contexts where they're like, do not question anything. You just toe the line and believe what we have to say. And you're saying, no, it's okay to question. It's a good thing. It's a healthy thing. So let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I often get some people scratch their heads. I've never heard a Christian use the language of skeptic, skeptical That's typically the language you hear from secular atheists. Right. Skepticism. I find that this is encouraged everywhere in the Bible. And I'll just give you a few passages. Like one of my favorite go-to places for this is Proverbs 14, 15, which says, The simple man believes everything, but the wise man gives thought to his steps. In other words, if we're going to be wise, we can't believe every foolish idea. The opening of the book of Proverbs has these two contrasting women. There's Lady Wisdom and then there's Lady Folly. And Lady Wisdom is kind of hard to get. She uh, sometimes will call to men saying, come, follow me. But mostly you've got to search her out and wait patiently outside her door. Lady Folly, on the other hand, is on every street corner. She's dressed like a prostitute. She's very appealing. She's got seductive, smooth words. Right. And she will bring you down to Sheol. Mm. (laughs) In other words, what Proverbs is encouraging is skepticism with regard to every foolish opinion and idea that's out there. And you have to sort of give thought to your steps. You have to hunt down truth that isn't everywhere. Right. You have to dig it up. And what is everywhere is our foolish ideas. Jesus, we'll talk about, you know, being aware, be aware of the false prophets and what I mentioned before with his talking about the blind leading the blind and the blind who do lead the blind will make you fall into a pit. Paul says, test all things, but hold on to the good. So you can have skepticism, right? run amok and to where you are testing everything, you're basically ridiculing everything as junk, but then you throw the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah, you kind of pendulum swing and uh, then you come to a point where... You don't believe in any kind of absolute truth, yeah. which I always find interesting when somebody says there is no absolute truth. And I'm like, that's kind of sounds like a statement of truth. That, <laughs> that sounds like absolute truth to me. I mean, what you're saying. There, so, but uh, yeah, I mean, we can kind of pendulum swing into that area. 
and I've said this too, like people that come out of certain contexts where they're told don't ever question anything and then they find out that it's not true. I mean, I can understand not wanting to believe anybody about anything. Right. Your your trust has been broken, (laughs) you know? So, yeah. Well, that was Sarah Beth Capusa's story. I mean, you interviewed her. I interviewed her on my podcast and she was telling me about the kinds of things she experienced in her life growing up, which though it had the word Baptist in the title, she says, you know, functionally it was a cult. And they said, you're not allowed to question things. Don't ask questions. That's actually sin to question things. Well, the problem is we are actually taught to question things. I mean, what does John say? Do not believe every spirit because there's so many false prophets have gone out. Yeah. Do not believe every spirit. Okay, so that's actually encouraging doubt. And then another one that is, I think, probably the most important one is Acts 17, where Paul encourages, that's actually Luke, who specifically calls out the Bereans for searching and questioning. Paul had come to them. He was walking through the scriptures telling them that Jesus had fulfilled these Old Testament prophecies. Right. And the Bereans didn't simply immediately accept everything he said, even though he claimed to be an apostle. Mm-hmm. They searched these things to see whether these things were so. And they're commended for doing that. In other words, it was a healthy skepticism. Like there are a lot of crazy people out there. There are a lot of differences between the different denominations. Why are you convinced that your particular way of reading the Bible, your interpretive community is the right one compared to all the 50 other major denominations out there or a hundred or a thousand. <laughs> right. Um, you know, in Sarah Beth's case, it looked like a Baptist church, but inside it, man, there were ravenous wolves inside that community, which caused amazing harm. If you hear her story, you're on the Broken Vessels podcast. So you, you, we see this kind of devastation just everywhere where people lose faith because they were told just follow us and we will do the thinking for you and turn your brain off. And then as they get older, they step outside the community, the homeschool world or their faith community. They go to college and now they see, oh, there are a lot of people who define faith exactly the way I did, but they're from a different faith tradition entirely. Yeah. So why makes, So why should I believe anything? Exactly. You and know? then you just realize, okay, I've been had. And sometimes because of that, people throw out everything about Jesus. Right. And that's where I say, okay, well, before you throw out the entire enchilada, take a look at what some of the criteria were given at the very beginning of the story. Revisit how they were encouraging people to believe in Jesus from the very beginning. So then reading outside of your denominational affiliation or religious affiliation, that's something that you believe is something that should be encouraged. You know, a lot of the contexts that many of us have come out of, they frown against that. I came out of the IFB. We've even talked about that on this podcast, that it's very cultic and some of it is even a cult. But very fundamentalist types, they tell you, if you ever read anything other than what they tell you to read, then that's the devil tempting you to believe something false, you know, or something like that. So a lot of people are coming out of that type of thing, you know, but you're saying, Hey, actually the Bible's telling you read everything, (laughs) test it out, figure it out. Now you've already kind of shared a little bit of some of the brokenness that comes as a result of that type of thinking of the questioning, you know, not questioning type of thinking. Uh, What are some other ways that you've seen brokenness in Christians' lives? Number one, by having a wrong idea of faith, and then number two, having this idea that you can't question anything. Yeah, well, historically, you know, encouraging blind faith in a charismatic leader 
has typically been one of the distinguishing characteristics of every major cult and uh, non-Christian religious system. That idea where you only should go by the charismatic leader and never read anything else. And that's actually one of the telltale signs of totalitarian leaders. We don't want you to have access to alternative points of view. We're going to keep everything, just the one narrative only. Right. (laughs) And so, yeah, that causes you to go crazy. You know, it's I'm only allowed. And I was talking to Rod Dreher about this recently on one of my podcasts. He was describing like one of the persons that grew up under a form of totalitarianism. And he says the person said that in totalitarianism, they don't want just outward conformity. They actually want your soul. Mm. And if you think about that, it's not just an alternative religion. It's actually it's almost sounds demonic. Oh, yeah, because it's, it's, it's a matter of power and control of yeah, individuals. Yeah, it's, and they, they want you not only to behave, but they want you to completely identify with everything that the people in the top, the elites, so whether you're talking about like Jim Jones and Jamestown, or you're thinking about Charles Manson, or you're thinking about North Korea, you have your people, your followers, you want them to be copies of you. And you don't want them to question anything because that's just the way it works. And that causes untold devastation. And Jesus actually, like I've been saying, you know, quoting passages from the Gospels, if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. It's the pit. It's from the pit. And it causes incredible destruction when you blindly follow religious authorities without investigating, without checking. You know, another side of this is we could talk about, like, what does it mean to love our neighbors? So when you and I are thinking through our options. You know, when we see, like, I have an interpretive option here. My community reads this particular passage this way. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, if you're talking to someone who has a different opinion and you're they're sharing with you, they've seen it differently. Is it loving your neighbor to put your fingers in your ears and say, I don't want to hear it? Right. <laughs> or is it more loving to listen to this person and to have him explain why he thinks that's the better interpretation. And the more you spend time in this world, you're going to bump into people from other faith traditions, other interpretations. And the best way to love your neighbor and to be wise yourself is to compare which interpretation best explains the text. This is what's, you know, what we do in science. Okay. Does my theory really explain reality? Mm-hmm. And can I do some tests, which will help me to see which theory best accounts for the data? So is your wrestling with, am I in this kind of cult where they're doing the thinking for me that's not really authentic? You have to do some of this particular interpretation. Is it really taught in the Bible? Is it the best interpretation of the Bible? What are the other alternative positions out there? Sometimes you don't need to question things if it's something everyone believes. Like, I don't know if you've ever been to Antarctica. I haven't been to Antarctica, (laughs) but I don't doubt that it's there, partly because no one has ever questioned that it's there. You know, it could be that the pictures we've seen of Antarctica are just Iceland, right? (laughs) but, you know, they put a different label at the bottom, right? Well, yeah, but there would probably be some kind of controversy or at least some kind of conspiracy theory that there really is no Antarctica and this has been photoshopped on all of our globes. Okay. Doubt it though, because there's just no controversy. When there's a controversy, that's when it's time to say, okay, I'm not just going to have confirmation bias that I'm the right one and my neighbor is the one who's wrong. And it's fear of the other, fear of different positions Mm -hmm. where you simply don't want to hear it. I don't want to listen to it. I don't even want to think that that's possible. That's not neighbor love. 
But listening to your neighbor and then hearing his arguments, that's what the Bereans were doing with Paul. They listened to him and reasoned with it, and then they became Christians, you know, and they were commended for their approach. And that's what I think we just need to get back to. Yeah, and I, and this is another podcast for another day, but that's why I think creeds and confessions are so important, you know, because, yeah. you know, th- this is stuff that there were controversies thousands of years ago that were where they had like these roundtables where guys are like right. debating these things. And then the church said, okay, this is what we believe. Now, you know, yeah, then we get the Roman Catholic Church and it kind of went off on this direction and eventually with the Protestant Reformation. And, you know, those two things are not the same, you know, but still, I mean, it's good to investigate those things. And again, like you say, you kind of eat the meat and spit out the bones, so to speak. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. Test the good, test all things, but hold on to the good. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Okay. So I guess the $500,000 question or $1 million question is then, well, how can we be certain in faith and still ask these questions? And in the end, how can this actually help us to heal and grow in our faith rather than it shaking our faith? And then how does the gospel fit into all this? Yeah, great question. I would say that my go-to text is 1 Corinthians 15, which you just mentioned creeds and confessions. This is the most important creed and confession, because it's the earliest one. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, scholars from across the spectrum, liberal, conservative, atheist, Muslim, they all now acknowledge that Paul is quoting an early, early Christian creed hmm. that goes back to the earlier mid-30s. So just after Jesus' death, within a few years, the Christians were saying that Jesus died for our sins, he was buried, he was raised on the third day, and it's according to the scriptures. Hmm. So that is the confession of this early community. Then what Paul says, by the way, Paul says, this is the thing of first importance, and he calls it the gospel. So it's the thing of first importance. It's the gospel. This gospel is news. It's not feelings. It's something that has happened. It's euangelion, a report of good news. Right. And so that's something outside of us, objective, there in history, Mm -hmm. that has to be explained. It's not just that Jesus died, but that he died for sin. Right. So there's a theological explanation for this thing. So that's what in Christian theology, our doctrines come out of actual events, news. So Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Here's where it gets interesting. This is still part of the gospel. The attestation for the gospel is not our inner feelings. Mm -hmm. The gospel's attestation is that it was already revealed in advance in the scriptures and then seen by living eyewitnesses. He goes on in that passage to cite, he is seen by Peter and Paul and the 500 who are still living. But then you have the repeating phrase, according to the scriptures. So that which the eyewitnesses saw was confirmed by prophets. And most of the scholars who focus on the kinds of things presented there in 1 Corinthians 15, most of them say the scriptures that they were thinking of would have been chiefly Isaiah 52, 53, which looks like a chapter from the Gospel of Matthew or John written 700 years in advance. Hmm. That's, I think, when I am at my lowest point and I'm just having all kinds of doubts, I always go back to a text like Isaiah 53 and I say, there's no way this is made up. This is the kind of language you find Justin Martyr and Irenaeus and Eusebius and Augustine using this kind of language because it's so clear that which Isaiah described about a suffering servant who would come to die. All we like sheep have gone astray, but the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. 
and he's cut off from the land of the living. He's dead. He's laid in the grave. All this is death language. And yet he sees light. And then by the end of this amazing passage in Isaiah 53, he's dividing spoils in a victory celebration. You have death, burial, resurrection, and atonement for sin in this passage 700 years before the time of Jesus. Now, we know this couldn't be made up because we actually have copies that date 200 years older from the Dead Sea Scrolls, 200 years before the time of Jesus. All right. Well, that gives you amazing confidence that this isn't something that was just made up in the time of Jesus because it was written in advance. And then the eyewitnesses in the time of Jesus are saying, we saw these same things confirmed in our day. Hmm. And then there's another passage that gives me amazing confidence, and that's John the Baptist's moment of doubt in, I think it's Luke 7. And he has this moment of doubt. He's the guy who pronounced this. He proclaims this sermon, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Yeah. And then in this scene, he's in prison and he sends a couple of his disciples to Jesus saying, go ask Jesus, are you the one to come or should we look for another? <laughs> now, he's a prophet. Yeah, And he'd already preached the sermon. Now he's doubting the words of his own sermon. Are you the one to come or should we look for another? He's no longer confidently saying Jesus is the Messiah, the one who will fulfill Isaiah 53. But now he's saying, are you that guy? And so that's one of these questions that I actually encourage. Jesus sends those two guys back. He doesn't say, come on, John, you know better than to ask a question like this. Where's your faith, John? Yeah. Didn't you have the feeling? Didn't you have the experience? Haven't you lived your best life now? Actually, he wasn't living his no, best life not, in not, prison not with his head point. to be about to be topped off. <laughs> yeah. So how did Jesus encourage John in his moment of doubt? Well, he tells his two disciples that had visited him, go tell John what you've just seen and heard. The blind see, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised. He's pointing to things that they've just seen. They become eyewitnesses to John. And then he's using the way he says it, mirrors language from Old Testament prophecy. He's kind of alluding to Isaiah 35 and other texts. So he's telling John, hey, that which the prophets expected about the Messiah has just happened in the sight of your two most reliable disciples. He's focusing on external things, objective, historical, external things, and how those realities matched what the prophets described in advance. Man, that is so good. It gives me a lot of hope and an encouragement. Man, that's where our so, assurance is. I mean, and it's where our assurance is. And it also, it's, it's room for doubt because John yeah. the Baptist himself was doubting these things. Yeah. Well, I was kind of thinking when you were saying John the Baptist was doubting his own sermon, I'm like, I've done that a few times. <laughs> I've, I've, you know, I've had my days where I'm like, yeah. man, you need to go back and listen to yourself from a few podcasts ago and hear what you were saying so that you can be encouraged by the objective truth that you were proclaiming. Because you need yeah. to hear that right now. Yeah, you know? sometimes the pastors and people and authors, you focus on these things, but there are times in which, you know, you're less confident in the very things that you were proclaiming. And that's where this is one of the reasons I love First Corinthians 15, because he calls that the gospel, the thing of first importance. Mm-hmm. And he right there with the gospel and baked into the gospel is its own attestation. It's this gospel is not just the fact, the doctrine of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection but it's Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection seen by witnesses and foreseen by the prophets. And there isn't any other faith like this. Yeah, that's awesome. Praise the Lord. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I hope that really is encouraging to your heart. I hope that as you struggle, I mean, I've said this before. I mean, there's days I wake up, I don't feel like I'm saved. (laughs) You know, So many days I could feel like I'm saved when I wake up and then 15 minutes later, I, I... 
get my first cup of coffee and then all of a sudden I'm not feeling like I'm saved. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we <laughs> we are people that are emotional. We are, we are human beings. We have emotions and those emotions are not faith. Be encouraged by that. Be encouraged that true faith is in the objective truth of Scripture, in the objective truth of the eyewitnesses, in the objective truth of God himself who came in the flesh and died for us on our behalf and rose again and is now seated at the right hand of the Father interceding for us even now. Man, there is nothing better than that. It just makes me want to just shout praise the Lord right now. Yeah, so, so that, that incur- it inspires emotion. Yeah, it does. But it's not dependent on the emotion. No, not at all. Yeah. Not at all. Well, brother, thank you so much for sharing with our listeners just about what true biblical faith is and that the fact is it's okay to question. <laughs> it's okay to have questions about these things and to investigate these things. And that's actually the scriptural response is to have questions and to read outside and, and to test all things. I, I, just, I just think that there's a lot of freedom in understanding these things. Yeah. I'll give you one more little anecdote. I mean, think sure. about the very beginning of the story. Moses is at the side of the burning bush. And he says at the very end of that narrative from Exodus 3 and 4, He says, you want me to go and tell the leaders of Israel that I was just having this conversation with the bush and that you want to have this great exodus. They're not going to believe me. Yeah. And so what does God say to Moses? He does not say, well, they'll feel in their hearts. I'm going to give them such a burning in their bosom that they will just know it's true. They'll know that they know that they know. He doesn't say they'll, if they put these few principles in action, they'll see that it's true by the way it, it changes their lives. Right. They'll have experiences. They'll have intuitions that none of that stuff that yeah. everybody always says faith is. What he says is, I will give you a sign. And if they don't believe it, I'll give you another sign. Yeah. And if they don't believe that, I'll give you another sign. And when you get to the end of Exodus 4, when Moses appeared to the elders and he performed the signs that confirmed the word, mm-hmm. they believed and they fell down and worshiped the God of Israel. Now, there's a comparison there to the book of the Quran. Muhammad asks Allah, will you give them a sign so that they can believe that I'm really a prophet? And Allah says this, just tell the people you are but a humble prophet. You are just a humble preacher. The signs belong to Allah. And is it not enough that I've given you the book? Mm-hmm. So in other words, there's nothing outside the claim right. that Islam is true. It's just a, it's a claim. Same with the book of Mormon. It's just a claim. Now, Mormons will end up saying that it's confirmed internally, subjectively again, with that burning in the bosom. Oh, yeah. (laughs) But there aren't any external corroborations. When you look to evaluate, how do I know for sure? Well, you know, can we do some DNA tests, for example, of American Indians? And are they the lost tribes of Israel? Are they Semitic? And it turns out they're not. Or you look for the archaeological thing. Oh, the plates, they got, you know, assumed back into heaven. Sorry, can't look at those. Right. So you don't have any external corroboration. The Bible is the unique text in all of human history. It's the one that encourages people to say, okay, I need external corroboration, and it provides it in Mm -hmm. spades. Yeah, man, that is good. Well, brother, if you would, go ahead and uh, share with our listeners where they can find you on social media and podcast-wise and your website. So you can listen to the Humble Skeptic podcast, just most every uh, podcast outlet. But uh, if you want to just head to my website, it's humbleskeptic.com. And there you'll find all kinds of articles and episodes. My first episode, I actually interviewed my dad 
because I was skeptical about his story that he visited the bar that Billy Joel first performed during this days when he was a, a struggling musician playing piano in a cocktail lounge. Huh. And my dad said, I saw Billy Joel perform and I thought, okay, so he, wait, that's when Billy Joel wrote his song Piano Man. Yeah. So <laughs> I talked to my brother about this and my brother said, well, that couldn't be because we lived in West Virginia at the time. And then, so I went from initial faith to doubt and like, okay, I guess Wikipedia is right and my dad is wrong. So that whole episode is exploring the question of, should I trust my dad or not? What's the evidence? You know, was he really there? And maybe I should have just had faith because my dad said it, I believe it, that settles it. Right, right. <laughs> That's the tradition I was raised with, you know, so I'm just kind of exploring that. It's kind of like a true crime investigation of whether my dad really was there. And and it's a lot of twists and turns in that, but it's kind of a fun story that helps people to see my method. I do believe that the best way to recognize truth and to, we should, we should only believe things that are true objectively. Right. And... You know, it's not about our feelings. It's about real truth external to us. And we have to be critical, especially when there's a conflict. Mm -hmm. In my case, there were conflicts between what I was hearing from my dad and what I was finding on the Internet. And how do I resolve those conflicts? And it takes right. thought and it takes time. And I try and do it on that pilot episode of my podcast. Everybody needs to go check that out because we got to know for sure if his dad actually met. But uh, <laughs> saw Billy Joel back in the day. <laughs> so, but uh well, brothers and sisters in Christ, I want to thank you so much for joining us to talk about these very important issues. And I, I really hope this has been an encouragement to you. I hope it has brought you a lot of freedom, even freedom to even question what we're saying, because what else? No, they, are you... should, they shouldn't do that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes. Don't, don't question us. Just... Now you're going too far. <laughs> But really, truthfully, yes, just the freedom to be able to wrestle with these things and to still know that you have the objective truth of the word of God and the objective truth of who Christ is and was for you and is right now for you and trust in that and have assurance even while you investigate these things. So praise God for that kind of freedom. And I hope this has been a freeing episode for you. So just want to thank you so much for joining us. Just make sure you just, we got a lot of good content coming. I got a lot of really good folks that uh, I have set up in the weeks to come. The Lord has just been gracious to us here at the Broken Vessels Podcast, and I just want to thank you all for your support and for your prayers and just for listening. And I hope you'll share episodes like this far and wide so that it can be an encouragement to other people. Because as our brother said, there's so many people, probably the predominant amount of people in the Christian church that have absolutely no idea what biblical faith is. They have no idea, and they need to know. So I encourage you to look to the Humble Skeptic podcast and to continue listening to the Broken Vessels podcast. Once again, thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you next week. Thank you.